Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. I'll give my own welcome to the men especially who are here, and women, many of them uh, with their husbands, for the pastor's conference. I got to greet a handful of you, but not all of you, and I hope to greet all of you before the week is over. It's good to have you here with us. Our focus is verses 12 to 21. And I mentioned uh, last week when we focused on this same passage I'm treating it again, and I'm treating it the way I'm treating it because really the whole passage does hang together. If you're not aware of it, as we'll see, there's a lot of repetition here, and Paul stating the same things over again. He's doing it for emphasis, and the reason I tried, actually made one effort to go through all of the 11 verses in one message, I didn't quite make it, or the 10 verses, but I'm treating it the way I'm treating it for that reason, because this is the way Paul gave us this passage. It hangs together. Not that all of Romans doesn't hang together, but this does in a special way. Um, I mentioned last week the connection between what we've come to, and I'll state it again before I read verses 12 to 21. It, verse 12 begins with a therefore, so it's pointing to what came before it. Uh, there's debate about what all it refers to. Let me assume that Paul is referring to everything he's said. He has asserted at the beginning of Romans, focused on it in the first two chapters, the sinfulness of the world and the fact that the world lies under the condemnation or under the wrath of God. Uh, he's asserted in chapter 2 the judgment of sinners because of that sin that is coming in the great day of judgment. But then beginning with chapter 3 and verse 21, he began to speak about salvation or to write about salvation in Christ, about justification, peace, hope, and joy as we have at the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then in verses 12 to the end of the chapter in chapter 5, we're taken back to the roots of the death that he wrote about in the first two chapters, and up really the first two and a half, and then the life that comes through Jesus Christ. And those roots are found in two key men, we could say, two leaders among men, two heads of groups of men or of human beings. And of course, those are Adam and Christ, and that's the focus of the passage before us. So verse 12 of Romans 5 to start. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, 
Much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, let's once again ask for God's help as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we especially thank you for this part of your word, the book of Romans, and this part of the book of Romans in which Paul is laying out the gospel of salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. We are familiar with these words, those of us who have been Christians for any length of time, but Father, take the familiar words and open them up to us and cause our hearts to rejoice at this great salvation and especially at this great Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. I mentioned an illustration that especially goes from this passage, or we could even say comes from this passage. Uh, last week, it's an illustration that was perhaps original, I presume it was, to Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan. I heard it quoted by Pastor Ted Donnelly years and years ago, and he talked about two giants among men. Of course, the giants are the giants of this text, Adam and Christ. And he spoke about how each one is like a giant who had a leather belt around his waist and everyone in the world was hanging from one of those belts. We could say everyone comes into the world hanging from Adam's belt and is therefore comes, he comes into the world condemned in sin, not only his own sins, but also Adam's sin. Or he's hanging on Christ's belt. Some, we could say, to put it in gospel terms, get unhooked from Adam's belt and end up hanging on Christ's belt. They're saved by the great giant, we could say, Jesus Christ. Or we could look at these men as two champions who represent their people, kind of like there were in 1 Samuel chapter 17. There was the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, and then there was the champion of Israel, David. And the fate 
of all their people, their whole nations, rested on the performance of one or the other. That's the idea that we have in this passage about Adam and Christ. I already mentioned the connection with what precedes that we saw last week. I'll jump then to the main point of this passage, and I'm going to give a fairly full review because, I like, like I said, all this, pa this passage hangs together. I'll try to keep it as brief as I can. The main point is stated in verse 12, where it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin, that's the first part of the main point, but then it's concluded in verse 18, because... As you see in some of your Bibles anyway, there's a parenthesis starting in verse 13. In my version, the New King James, the parenthesis goes all the way to verse 17 through the end of it. And then Paul picks up again and he finishes this opening thought. And it's really the main point of the passage. It says, therefore, verse 18, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. The point is, the main point of this passage, Romans 5, 12 to 21, is that the lot or the inheritance of every man, I mean every human being, is the fruit of the act of one of two men, whether for ill or for good. That's the point of this passage. I mentioned that there are two significant principles taught in Scripture that relate to God's dealings with men that we see that are assumed here. One of them is federal headship, and the assertion of the passage is Adam is the head of the human race. He re represents the entire human race, and he's their representative before God. And how it goes with Adam, it will go with them. And the other federal head the Bible teaches about is Christ, the last Adam. Or we could call him the second Adam. Christ is the head of his people. He is the head of the church, the head of the elect. And then the second principle I mentioned that goes along with federal headship is what we could call the principle of solidarity. That means that God looks at people, generally speaking, as groups. He looks at nations that way to a degree. He looks at mankind that way as a group in solidarity under Adam. He looks at the people of God that way, a group that is unified in Christ. That's true about the members of a group. That's true about the members and their head, whether sinners and their father Adam or saints and their federal head Christ. There's federal headship taught and assumed in the Bible. There's solidarity taught in the Bible. Those things are assumed in this passage. And this is something that is ordained by God. He sees these groups and their heads as one, and he treats them as one. And you might say, well, that's a raw deal because we're condemned because of Adam. It's not a raw deal. 
Your only hope for salvation is to have Christ as your federal head because you could never do what it would take to save yourself, but he has done it. And that's the only way you can be saved from sin and death and hell is through Jesus Christ. You might say it's a curse. It is if your father is Adam. But ultimately, it's a great blessing that God looks at us as members of a group who have a head and he treats us the way he treats the head. So that's the main point. The lot or inheritance of every man, every human being, is the fruit of the action of one of two men, whether for ill or for good. That's the main point here. And we began to see how this is demonstrated in our text, and we began with the comparison of Adam and Christ. That's the, the next main point, the comparison of Adam and Christ. And that's where we spent our time last week. But I wanted to get to, but I'll get to it today, because this is really the main thing, the contrast between Adam and Christ. But let me just review what we saw last time. There's a comparison between Adam and Christ. They're like each other in a certain way. And they're like each other in this, according to this passage, beside that they're each federal heads of their own groups of people, Adam of the entire human race, Christ of all the elect or all his people, all the church. Here's the point of comparison. Each one of them introduced something to the world, or we could say introduced something, to borrow the language of the text, to all men. That's the point of comparison especially. So let's first of all notice Adam, and I mentioned seven things, and there's overlap, and like I said, it's purposeful on Paul's part, but just let me mention the things I pointed out last time. First of all, Adam is the one originally to blame for the death of every human being. You may not like that. It's the truth of the word of God. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. The second point, because of Adam, death has reigned. Verse 14, nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Third thing to notice about Adam when we're thinking of the comparison, and this sets up for the ways that Christ compares to him. The third thing is, one man's sin or trespass, or transgression is a good translation of the particular word used here in verse 15. One man's sin brought the death of many. And the many is a very large number. Now it is billions of people. That's in verse 15, the last part of the verse. Just focus on one part of it. By the one man's offense, that's his sin, many died. Adam sinned, death came to many. Huge, huge number. Fourth point, under Adam, it took only one transgression of our head, Adam, to condemn us all. 
That's all it took. You say, well, what about my sins? We'll see something about them in a bit. That's all it took to condemn you forever. One transgression of Adam, our head. Verse 16b, the judgment which came from one offense, Paul says, resulted in condemnation. Condemnation for all. Fifth, again, it's a repetition stated just a little bit differently, but again, this one transgression of our head resulted in death reigning over all. Verse 17, the first part of the verse, it says, by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Death ruled over all because of one. And then sixth, and this is just a restatement of what I stated earlier in uh, my fourth point, it only took one transgression to condemn us all. Uh, this is in verse that's verse 16b. Now we're looking at verse 18a. It's a restatement of that. Here's how it's stated in the beginning of verse 18. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation. The judgment is in God's court in heaven. It will one day be um, actualized, we could say, in the judgment day when all the world stands before Jesus Christ, the judge, and is judged, and then will be condemned, if they're not in him, but are only still in Adam, condemned to hell. You see a lot of repetition, as I said. It's for emphasis, as I mentioned at the outset. And again, that's why I decided to preach it the way I'm preaching it. The, point, the seventh point about Adam is this. It's another restatement. You compare it to what we saw at the end of verse 12. Here it's in the section where Paul is um, recapitulating everything that he's stated already, but it's verse 19a. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. You might say to yourself, why did Paul say all these things so similar to each other over and over again, adding little differences, a phrase here, a word there. Why did he say it so many times? Almost the same thing. Well, like I said, it's for emphasis. But why exactly did Paul do that? I can't get into Paul's mind. But I'll tell you the reason I'm preaching the way I'm preaching, repeating these things over and over again, is because Paul wrote it this way. And that's what I try to follow when I, when I come to consecutive exposition especially. So there's the comparison of Adam and Christ. First, Adam. Second, Christ. So I'm still reviewing here. And we're noting how Adam and Christ are alike. Look at the end of verse 14, what Paul says there. Adam, he says, is a type of him who was to come. So Adam is not Christ. But Adam is similar to Christ. He came before Christ. He points to Christ. That what's, that's what makes him a type. Type is someone who is a symbol of someone who comes later on and who is pointing toward him. So Adam is a type, verse 14 says, of him who was to come. So I repeated a lot about Adam. I'm not going to repeat all we saw last week under this heading about Christ. I'm just going to summarize it using 
the language of John Murray and his observation about what we see in Romans 5. And here's my summary here. And the reason I'm going to just summarize it is because we're going to be going over the same texts under the next main heading that we went over under this heading about Christ last week. But the first thing is this in the summary. Adam introduced sin, condemnation, and death. Those are the bad things that we see are the legacy, if you will, or the inheritance that Adam gives to his posterity. Sin, condemnation, and death. He introduced those things to all his posterity. Of course, Adam's posterity are all human beings born into this world, excepting Christ, who was not a sinner, who did not come into the world with a sin nature. So that means Christ must have introduced something. What did Christ introduce? Well, Christ introduced righteousness, justification, and life to all of his posterity. Christ's posterity, of course, are all those born, not just into this world, but born into his kingdom. Those who are born again, those who are believers in him. All right, so there's the comparison of Adam and Christ. Each was a federal head. Each bestowed, we could say, something upon his posterity. Each one, Adam and Christ, bestowed something upon those federally identified with him. Now we come to what I was aiming to get to last week, which is the main thing, the main point of this passage. It's the contrast between Adam and Christ. There is a comparison taught in this passage. Both are the heads of many people. Both are the heads of numerous descendants, numerous offspring. And thus, as the heads of those families, offspring, descendants, both of them leave what we could call inheritances to those that they represent. Yet here's the point under this heading of the contrast between Adam and Christ. And this is it. Christ's contribution or bestowal vastly excels Adam's. In fact, the word I chose especially to use is this. Christ's legacy vastly excels you could say surpasses, transcends, outdoes, outshines Adam's. A legacy is anything handed down from an ancestor. So we're going to read about Christ's legacy with the background of it being Adam's legacy. His is sin, condemnation, and death, Christ's is righteousness, justification, and life. We saw that already last week as we looked at the comparison. I, as we went through the comparison and I covered what the, Paul was saying about Christ in his similarity to Adam, it was hard to um, extricate the differences from the text. They were there. We read them. We looked at them. I tried to ignore all the conjunctions and the adverbs, the buts, the if-thens, the much-mores. But that's what our focus is going to be on this week as we look at the contrast between Adam and Christ. 
Were they both federal heads? Yes, that's what we saw. Did they both leave something to their offspring? Yes, we saw that. But there were vast differences, and that's what Paul is highlighting in these, the rest of what we're going to look at today. So those texts that reinforce the fact that there is a comparison between Adam and Christ, also the same texts are also making the point that there is a true contrast. And as we saw, there is a genuine comparison between the two, but there's also a very real contrast. And as I said, the contrast is really Paul's main point in this passage. So let's notice the differences then between Adam and Christ in their roles as federal heads. I have six things. First, Adam's legacy, what he leaves to his posterity, is death. Christ's is abounding grace. Adam's legacy is death. Christ's is abounding grace. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> Paul says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So let's just notice a few things, and I won't be pausing long at any particular verse because there's a lot of ground to cover, but notice Paul's assertion there at the beginning of the verse. He says, the free gift is not like the offense. So you see how Paul is making the point about a great contrast here. You have two giants, as I say, two champions among men. There's the similarity. They're both federal heads. They both have a legacy. They both have a posterity. But here's a huge difference. But the free gift, that is what Christ brings, is not like the offense. Paul asserts that, and then he goes on to explain it in the rest of the verse. Here's the explanation. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So you see that you don't have the darkness here when he talks about Christ compared to, to Adam. It's not the death, the sin, the condemnation. But it's life and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So notice how Paul states it. His point is not just that it's like there was a death and he has brought the person out of death. He's resuscitated, resuscitated him, maybe like the son of the widow of Nain or Lazarus when Jesus went and raised him. He didn't just raise them up. This is the, the, the way Paul is speaking here. He didn't just raise us up or anyone up to the life we knew before. We don't just get raised even to the life that Adam knew before he fell into sin. We're not just resuscitated, but Paul speaks it in such a way to say that Christ brings abundant life. I think there's a good parallel to this statement here in John 10 verse 10 where Jesus is speaking about himself as the good shepherd, and he's contrasting himself to someone there, a thief. And he says this, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may have life and 
that they may have it more abundantly. In other words, I'm not just here to keep people alive, keep up the status quo, keep up a steady state situation. I'm here to do far more than that, much more than that. That's what Paul is saying with his language here. Much more. It's the grace of God. It's the gift by the grace of the one man. It has abounded to many. It makes me think of Jesus' statement in John 7, verses 7 to 39, where on the great last day of the feast in Jerusalem, he stands and he lifts up his voice and he says that everyone who thirsts should come to him. Come to me, he says. He's calling people to faith in him. And he says, if you believe in me, what's going to happen is rivers of living water are going to flow out of your belly. And someone might say, that doesn't sound like normal human existence. That's the point. It's not. It's an abundance of blessing from God. As John said at the end of that, he says he was speaking about the Holy Spirit who was not yet. Blessings untold that Adam and Eve did not know in the Garden of Eden that had not yet been tainted by sin will be known because of what Christ does when he comes into this world and does his work. That's the idea. Adam's legacy is death. Christ's is abounding grace. So the, in the end, in the end, what will be happening? What will we experience in the last day? We will, we started out as corruptible. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be incorruptible. We started out as weak and ignominious. What's the word, Paul? We, we were dishonor. We were in dishonor. We're raised up with glorious bodies. We're weak. We will be powerful. We were earthy like Adam. We will be like Christ, spiritual, filled with the Holy Spirit, utterly controlled by the Spirit of God and not by our native lusts anymore. Makes me think of the statement in John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then the previous verse as well, John 1.16, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. I can't remember the commentary. I read this in years ago when I was preaching through John, but the commentator said it's the grace for grace. It doesn't mean grace in place of grace, um, that you give God grace, he gives you grace back or something like that. He says grace for grace, it's like this. It's like a wave of the sea coming in. And then after it comes in, it kind of starts to recede. But before it does, what happens? Another one comes right on top of it. Grace after grace after grace is what Christ has purchased for his people. Waves after waves of grace. That's the kind of language Paul is using. It's not that Christ simply undid the harm caused by Adam. Christ does far more than that. Christ is a fountain of life that never stops flowing and never stops giving life. Then the third thing that we see, 
from verse 15 still, still, still on that first point of Adam's legacy is death, but Christ is a bounding grace. The third thing we see, I just want to say something briefly. I have to be brief because it talks about um, the one man's offense led to the death of many, and then the grace of God through Christ abounded to many. What about that word many? In Adam, the many is the entire human grace. That's race, not grace. The entire human race. It's a lot of people. In Christ, the word many is restricted. It's not the entire human race. This is not teaching universal salvation. That is, that everybody will be saved in the end. It's not saying that. It's not all the same individuals, though they're both called the many. It's the elect, all the elect. All believers, they're not the same individuals as Adam led into death. Not everyone is saved by Christ. But it does say many because there's a parallel between him and Adam. It is a huge number that are saved. Think of what God said to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen: I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. All of his spiritual descendants are, Romans 7, 9 tells us, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues who will be standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So we're looking at the contrast. The first one is what we just saw. Adam's legacy is death. Christ is abounding grace. Second, and this is a two-part heading, so listen. In Adam, one sin produced mass sin and death. That's the first part of it. In Christ, the devastation caused even by an untold number of sins has been completely reversed. All right? So what, how many sins did it take for Adam to plunge us into mass sin and death. That death spread to every human being because sin spread to every human being. How many sins of Adam did it take? One. And this is what we see in verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense. That was it. That's all that was needed. It resulted in condemnation. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. Here's the point. By time Jesus Christ came, was there still only one sin in the world? For which he was going to do what we could call mop-up duty? Was there just one? No, absolutely not. There was, what I just said, an untold number of sins. We could say an Im I'm going to say this word right. An inestimable number of sins. If the people saved cannot be numbered by any man. And that means the, the world population could not be numbered by any man because it's even larger as broad as the road that leads to destruction. Imagine trying to estimate the number of sins in this world. I mean, imagine trying to estimate 
the number of sins you commit in your lifetime. Know, if you know anything about your heart and know anything about the Word of God and the law of God. Imagine trying to estimate the number of sins you commit in a year. You get my point. Or a day. Logic would say if one sin led to the condemnation and death of our entire race, then we can only imagine what would be the result of literally billions and billions, we could say times billions, of sins. That is, the sins of the entire race. Look at it like this. When God finally had Assyria carry away Israel, I'm going to read 2 Kings 17, verse 10. We read this. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. I mean, we could say, why, why didn't God expel them from the land the first time one of the high priests did that, or one of the priests of the temple? Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they expel? The, why didn't God spit out the nation of Israel after the first time one of the kings did such a thing? God, in his patience and his long-suffering, waited, didn't he? He waited till it got to the point that he said about Israel, they've done this other, under every green tree and on every high hill in the hilly land of Israel. So that eventually the long-suffering of God even said, Enough! This sin has to be punished. My people will be spit out of the land. And we think, if just one sin of Adam did that, look at all the sins that all the people of this world have committed. Is there any undoing of that? That's our logic. How could it be? That's not the way God responded, is it? That's the idea here. It's not the way God responded. He didn't respond according to human logic. The human logic is this. The more you sin, the more you're going to suffer. In fact, that's even God's logic in giving His laws to Israel, isn't it? The lex talionis. An eye for an eye and a true tooth for a tooth. That's human justice in our justice courts, which is the way it should be. But here is God's logic. We could call it gospel logic. I'll read it from Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Or Isaiah 55, 7-9. God says, let the wicked forsake his way. You're a sinner sitting here today. God says, forsake your wicked, sinful ways. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm so thankful to God 
that his thoughts are so much higher than mine and yours. I'm thankful to God for this divine logic, this gospel logic that says in one of our hymns, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's the second point about the contrast. In Adam, one sin produced mass sin and death. In Christ, the devastation caused by an untold number of sins has been completely reversed. The third thing, whereas death reigned because of Adam, believers will live and reign in Christ. It's verse 17. For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, if by the one man's offense, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. The point is this. He's not only going to give life in place of death, just like because of Adam, death reigned over the whole world. Christ is going to cause life to reign. But the way Paul states it is this, not just that life is going to reign, he states it this way, he's going to make you part of the ruling class, if you will. He's going to make you a co-ruler along with him. You see how he stated it. He says, much more, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. So you, if you're a Christian, are part of the subject of that. You will reign in life. Like we read in 1 Peter 2.9, Christians are a royal priesthood. We're kings because of Christ. Or Revelation 22 verse 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they, that is believers, shall reign forever and ever. Just like the saints even now, according to Revelation 24, are reigning with Christ. Once again, the emphasis, brethren, is on the abundance of the blessing. We have a verb uh, that indicates that in verse 15, where it says that the free gift at the end of the verse abounded to many. That's the verb. The noun that goes along with that uh, is what we have in verse 17, um, that there will be an abundance of grace. In all these ways, Paul is emphasizing, like with the word reign, that there will be abundance. The fourth point about Christ being contrasted with Adam. And here Paul is just summarizing and concluding, so I'll keep it brief. One man's sin, that's Adam's, brought condemnation to the whole world. So one man's obedience, that's Christ, brought life, a justification and life to all of his people. It's verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now let's just move to the next point, and I'll say some more about that statement under this next one, which is similar. The next thing, the fifth thing about the contrast between Christ and Adam is this. One man's disobedience made many sinners. One man's, one man's obedience will make many 
righteous. All right? So in verse 18, Christ's obedience is called the one man's righteous act. Here it's called his obedience. Look at verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Let me just say a couple words about what Christ's obedience is, or in the language of verse 18, his righteous act. And it's spoken of in the singular. I think we look at it this way. It's especially focusing on Christ's death, because that especially is what saves us, justifies us. But we look at it this way, and I think this is how Paul wants us to look at it. His dying is the culmination of all his obedience. His dying is the epitome of all his obedience. That's how I think we understand it. It's not the entirety of his obedience. All his obedience was necessary, I think. In fact, Jesus stated it that way, didn't he? At the River Jordan, when he went to be baptized by John, he comes to be baptized. John asks him why. In Matthew, Jesus answers this, because it's necessary that all righteousness be fulfilled. In other words, I need to do this. It's what God commands his people to do right now, John. I'm, I, I'm doing this as the head of all my people. I need to do this. So the death is the culmination of all his obedience. I think that is stated in a very clear and straightforward way in Philippians 2, if you want to turn over there. Philippians 2, verse 8. Notice what it says. Speaking about Christ coming into this world, humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, we read, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Okay, so I think when it says even the death of the cross, some people want to say, well, see, it's just that obedience that Paul is focusing on. I think Paul's looking at it this way. The obedience that went right up to the cross the drinking of that cup that was so difficult for Christ to contemplate drinking. He says right up to and including that and right on through it, Paul says that's his obedience. Kind of like Jesus saying on the, last, the day of the Last Supper, John 13, 1. He didn't say it, John said it, but when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples... John is contemplating that act, and he's contemplating especially the act that Christ was about to undertake to save his people, laying down his life on the cross. And John's comment is, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Was, was he just focusing on the ultimate act of love? No. He was focusing on everything that Jesus did to him for his disciples from the time he met them through the time that he washed their feet and then especially what he did as he hung on the cross. And so Christ's obedience is especially what he did in drinking the cup of the Father's wrath on the cross, but it's everything that he did on behalf of his people in obeying God's commands and doing his will. That's an important point about what that obedience is. 
I'll probably give you more in an upcoming Sunday school class. So let me pass on to the next. The sixth and final thing about the contrast. The the sixth thing is this. Sin does abound. Especially when we add our own to Adam's sin. But grace abounds far more. In fact, grace reigns in Christ. Notice verses 20 and 21 of Romans 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So now it is talking about your sins and mine. As if the sin of Adam wasn't enough and it was enough to condemn us. But according to his wise and sovereign purposes, God ordained that there would be a lot more sins. And so he brought in a law so that our sins would come close to the wickedness of Adam because just like Adam was told what to do and what not to do, but he did it anyway, and so are all of us. And as it says here and in Galatians 3, it it, it comes to aggravate our sins, our sinful nature, and lead us to sin more, and it fills up the full measure of sin that Christ is going to overcome. So verse 20, moreover, the law entered that sin, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, both Adam and Christ are very prolific as federal heads. They're very fruitful as federal heads. Adam is a very fruitful federal head. He sinned. It caused a terrible amount of devastation. It spawned a grievous, massive amount of sin in the world. Christ's headship is even more prolific and more fruitful because he does away with all of that sin and misery for his people. He overcomes it all. I'll say some things about the law because I really didn't even touch on verses 13 and 14 yet. In an upcoming Sunday school class, God willing as well, we have to pass by that first part of verse 20. In verse 21, let me just notice a couple things. In the first part of the verse, verse 21a, so that as sin reigned in death, Adam's legacy is this. There was one man, there was one sin, it led to the reign in this world of sin, condemnation, and death. It's a sad world, yes it is. It's a wicked world, yes it is. That's a biblical perspective. Sorry that that's the truth, but it is. But then verse 21b, and the point here is Christ's legacy. It says here, even so, that grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is Christ's legacy? It's this, one man plus grace, if you will, leads to the reign of righteousness, justification, and life. Adam was very fruitful, and in his fruitfulness, we could say he was assisted by the law. The law came in that there might even be more sins, a multiplication of what Adam had wrought. In Christ's fruitfulness, we could say he had the advantage of grace. 
so that he is even more fruitful and prolific a federal head than Adam. And then verse 20b is a very good statement of what this whole passage is saying, a very good statement of the bottom line of this contrast between Adam and Christ. Look at the last part of verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. It made me think of the passage I was reading in my devotions this last week about the contrast between Adam and Christ. It's Daniel 8, verses 3 through 7, where Daniel has this vision of a ram and a goat, and the ram was conquering right and left. It said every direction, east, south, north, west, every direction. No king could stand against him. No nation could withstand him. But then who appears on the scene? A goat. And the goat demolished the ram and trampled the ram. Don't bother to look up the passage and try to see how it fits with Romans 5. He's not a type of Christ, but it just made me think of that. Here was this one that was wrecking havoc, and then someone came and just smashed him. And that's what Christ did when he came. As far as Adam and his evil work and all the evil results of it. The one point of similarity is this, a seemingly indestructible force for evil, Adam's sin, is itself destroyed by a vastly superior power. It's our Christ. So the conclusion is, is this, there's Paul's message where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in conclusion, just a couple of things, brethren. First, for those of you who are unbelievers sitting here today, the message to every sinner from this passage, every sinner here today, is this. I quoted it earlier from a hymn. Though your sins may be as scarlet, they may be washed as white as snow. Nothing about the power of sin, and it is great, is too great for Jesus Christ to overcome. Look to Christ, look to his cross. You say, but there's something ugly about the cross. Yes, there is. I think it's the ugliest thing this universe has ever beheld. But look to the cross and look to the Christ who once hung on it. He doesn't hang there anymore. He is mighty to save. Adam's sin, we could say, was powerful in its effect. It has led to the death of a whole world of people. It has led to gross idolatry and immorality in this world. It has led to human trafficking. It has led to murder. It has led to terrorism. It has led to the massacre of infants in the last week's time. And it has led to the wickedness and the vileness that I have seen deep in my heart and that you have seen, even as an unbeliever, deep in yours, if you ever take the time to look there and if you're ever honest. Jesus Christ overwhelms it all 
like a tsunami does a primitive Javanese island. He wipes all the effects of Adam's sin away. And even if you say, but me, I'm not just any sinner, I'm a great sinner. The message to great sinners here today is this. In other words, you think, you may even feel that your sins make you worse than most people. Maybe you are. The message is, though, that even your sins can be washed away in the blood of Christ. Even you, sitting here today, if you bow the knee to King Jesus, if you repent of your sins, if you believe in him, you will be received by him and you will be blessed by him if you turn to him today. I mentioned it last week. I thought I might turn to it and read it this week. I won't for the sake of time. But there's a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, where Paul says, he was an apostle and a preacher of the gospel. He said, I used to be a persecutor of the church, and I would call myself the worst sinner ever in the world. Chief of sinners is his language. He's right, because the scripture cannot be broken. And Paul says, but God saved me. He washed my sins away. And he says, God did that as an example. To say that if I can be saved, you can be saved, whoever you are and however, you're wicked, however wicked you are. And my message to you is this today. Your father is my father. That is Adam. I came into the world with him as my father, just like you. And what I'm saying to you today is leave him. Leave your wicked father, Adam. Don't let him... Be your champion when you stand before God on the judgment day. Don't let that happen. Leave him and take Christ as your champion. Repent of your sins. Christ will forgive you. His grace is abundant. It is overflowing. Receive the free gift of salvation of the forgiveness of your sins, of justification, of having the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself credited to your account today. Go down to your house justified. That's what will happen if you believe in him today. And then I just close with these words for believers, Christians, my dear brethren in Christ. We could put the main message of this text this way. In this world that is marked by sin, condemnation, and death. You have found righteousness, justification, and life. And you have found it all in abundance, and you have found it all as a free gift by grace. And it's all for one reason because of Jesus Christ and the practical application is this give all glory laud and honor to him let's pray father in heaven we thank you for your word and ask that you would take it 
and write it on our hearts, especially we ask that you would open the eyes of unbelieving sinners here today and bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ, to abundance of grace, to life never-ending, all for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.